Welcome to Volume 8 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 16 If you are one of the better elements, who are never happier than when curled up with the works of B. Worcester, you possibly came across a previous slab of these reminiscences of mine, in which I dealt with a visit that Jeeves and I paid to Deverell Hall, the rural seat of Esmond Haddock, J.P., and will recall that while under the Haddock roof, Jeeves found my Aunt Agatha's son Thomas in possession of what is known as a kosh, and very prudently impounded it, feeling, as who wouldn't, that it was the last thing that ought to be at the disposal of that homicidal young thug. The thought which had flushed my brow in the manner described was, had Jeeves still got it? Everything turned on that. I found him richly apparelled and wearing the bowler hat at the wheel of the car, on the point of putting a foot on the self-starter. Another moment and I would have been too late. Racing up, I inaugurated the quiz without delay. Jeeves, I said, throw your mind back to that time we stayed at Deverell Hall. Are you throwing? Yes, sir. Then continue to follow me closely. My Aunt Agatha's young son, Thomas, was there. Precisely, sir. With the idea of employing a kosh on a schoolmate of his called Stinker, who had incurred his displeasure for some reason. He had purchased it before leaving London. A blackjack, to use the American term, sir. Never mind American terms, Jeeves. You took the weapon from him. I deemed it wisest, sir. It was wisest. No argument about that. Let a plug ugly like young Thomas loose in the community with a kosh, and you're inviting disaster. And, and what's the word? Something about cats. Cataclysms, sir. That's it. Cataclysms. Unquestionably, you did the right thing. But all that is beside the point. What I'm leading up to is this. That kosh. Where is it? Among my effects at the apartment, sir. I'll drive you to London and pick it up. I could bring it with me on my return, sir. I did a brief dance step. On his return, forsooth. When would that be? Late at night, probably. Because that gang at a hot spot like the Junior Ganymede don't break up a party at the end of a lunch. I know what happens when these wild butlers let themselves go. They sit around till all hours, drinking deep and singing close harmony and generally whooping it up like a bunch of boys at the Malamute saloon. It would mean that for a whole of the long summer day I should be defenceless. An easy prey for a Stilton who, as I had just been informed, was prowling about, seeking whom he might devour. That's no good, Jeeves. I required it immediately. Not tonight, not a week from Wednesday, but at the earliest possible moment. I'm being hotly pursued by cheese right Jeeves. Indeed, sir. And if I am to stave off the cheese right challenge, I shall be in need of a weapon. His strength is as the strength of ten, and unarmed I should be corn before his sickle. Extremely well put, sir, if I may say so. And your diagnosis of the situation is perfectly accurate. Mr. Cheesewright's robustness would enable him to crush you like a fly. Exactly! He would obliterate you with a single blow, sir. He would break you in two with his bare hands. He would tear you limb from limb. I frowned slightly. I was glad to see he appreciated the gravity of the situation. But these crude physical details seem to be uncalled for. No need to make a production number of it, Jeeves, I said with a touch of coldness. What I am driving at is that, armed with the kosh, I can face the blighter without a tremor. You agree? Most decidedly, sir. 
Then shift two, I said, and hurled myself into the vacant seat. This cache of which I had been speaking was a small rubber bludgeon, which at first sight you might have supposed unequal to the task of coping with an adversary of Stilton Cheesewright's tonnage. In repose, I mean to say, it didn't look like anything so frightfully hot, but I had seen it in action, and was hep to what Florence would have called its latent potentialities. At Deverell Hall, one night, for the soundest of reasons, but too long to go into here, Jeeves had had the occasion to beat a policeman with it, Constable Dobbs, a zealous officer, and the smitten slop had dropped as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. There's a song frequently sung by curates at village concerts, which runs, I fear no foe in shining armour, though his lance be bright and keen. Or is it swift and keen? I can't remember. Not that it matters. The point is, those words summed up my attitude pretty nicely. They put what I was feeling in a nutshell. With that cosh on my person, I should feel debonair and confident, no matter how many cheese rights came bounding at me with slavering jaws. Everything went according to plan. After an agreeable drive, we dropped anchor at the door of Berkeley Mansions and made our way to the flat. There, as foreshadowed with the cosh, Jeeves handed it over. I thanked him in a few well-chosen words. He went off to his orgy, and I, after a bite of lunch at the drones, settled myself into the two-seater and turned its nose. Worcestershire words. The first person I met, as I passed through the portals, a wrinkly court some hours later was Aunt Dahlia. She was in the hall, pacing up and down like a distrait tigress. Her exuberance of the morning had vanished completely, leaving her once more the haggard aunt of yesterday, and I was conscious of a quick pang of concern. Golly, I said, what's up, old relative? Don't tell me that scheme of yours didn't work. She kicked morosely at a handy chair, sending it flying into the unknown. It hasn't had a chance to work. Why not? Didn't Spode turn up? She gazed at me with sombre eyes, apparently in the hope of finding another chair to kick. There not being one in her immediate sphere of influence, she kicked the sofa. He turned up all right, and what happened? Before I could draw him aside and get so much as a word in, Tom swooped in on him and took him off to the collection room to look at his foul silver. They've been in there for more than an hour. And how much longer they're going to be, heaven knows. I pursed my lips. One ought I felt to have anticipated something of this sort. Can't you detach him? No human power can detach a man to whom Tom is talking about his silver collection. He holds him with a glittering eye. All I can hope is that he will be so wrapped up in the silver that he'll forget all about the necklace. The last thing a nephew of the right sort wants to do is to shove a wallowing ant still more deeply beneath the surface of the slough of despond than she already is. But I had to shake my head at this. I doubt it. She gave the sofa another juicy one. So do I doubt it. That's why I'm going steadily cuckoo, and may at any moment start howling like a banshee. Sooner or later he'll remember to take Spode to the safe. And what I am saying to myself is, when, when, I feel like, who was the man who sat with a sword dangling over him, suspended by a hair, wondering how long it was going to be before it dropped and gave him a nasty flesh wound? She had me there, nobody I had ever met, certainly not one of the fellows of the drones, or I should have heard about it. I couldn't tell you, I'm afraid.
Jeeves probably knows. At that mention of the honoured name, her eyes lit up. Jeeves, of course. He's the man I want. Where is he? In London. He asked me if he could take the day off. It was a Junior Ganymede monthly luncheon today. She uttered a cry which might have been the howl of a banshee to which she had alluded, and gave me the sort of look which, in the old tally-ho days, she would have given a mentally deficient hound which she had observed suspending its professional activities in order to chase a rabbit. You let Jeeves go away at a time like this, when one has never needed him more? I hadn't the heart to refuse. He was taking the chair. He'll be back soon. By which time? She would have spoken further, a good deal further, if I read or write the message in her eyes. But before she could get going, something whiskered down the stairs, and Percy was with us. Seeing me, he halted abruptly. Worcester. His agitation was very marked. Where have you been all day, Worcester? I told him I had driven to London, and he drew his breath in with a hiss. In this hot weather? It can't be good for you. You mustn't overtax yourself, Worcester. You must husband your strength. He had chosen the wrong moment for horning in. The old relative turned on him as if he had been someone she had observed heading off a fox, if not shooting it. Gorringe, you ghastly sheep-faced fugitive from hell! She thundered, forgetting, or so I imagined, that she was a hostess. Get out of here, blast you! We're in conference! I suppose mixing with editors of poetry magazines toughens a fellow, rendering him impervious to verbal assault, for Percy, who might well have been expected to wilt, didn't wilt by a damn sight, but drew himself up to his full height, which was about six feet two, and came back at her strongly. I am sorry to have intruded at an unseasonable moment, Mrs. Travers. He said with a simple dignity that became him well. But I have a message for you from Mother. Mother would like to speak to you. She desired me to ask if it would be convenient if she came to your room. Aunt Dahlia flung her hands up emotionally. I can understand how she felt. The last thing a woman wants when distraught is a chat with someone like Ma Trotter. Not now. Later, perhaps. Is it important? I received the impression that it was most important. Aunt Dahlia heaved a deep sigh, the sigh of a woman who feels that they are coming over the plate too fast for her. Ho, oh, all right. Tell her I'll see her in half an hour. I'm going back to the collection room, Bertie. It's just possible that Tom may have run down by now. But one last word. She added as she moved away. The next subhuman gargoyle that comes butting in and distracting my thoughts while I'm trying to wrestle with vital problems takes his life into his own hands. Let him make his will and put in his orders for lilies. She disappeared at some 40 mph, and Percy found her retreat form with an indulgent eye. What a quaint character, he said. I agree that the old relative was quaint in spots. She reminds me a little of the editress of Parnassus, the same tendency to wave her hands and shout when stirred. But about this drive of yours to London, Worcester, what made you go there? Oh, I just had one or two things I had to attend to. Well, I'm thankful you got back safely. The toll of the roads is so high these days. I trust you always drive carefully, Worcester. No speeding? No passing on blind corners? Oh, that's just wonderful. But 
We were all quite anxious about you. We couldn't think where you could have gotten to. Cheesewright was particularly concerned. He appeared to think you had vanished permanently, and he said there were all sorts of things he had been hoping to discuss with you. I must let him know you're back. It will relieve his mind. He trotted off, and I lit a nonchalant cigarette. Coleman collected to the eyebrows. I was perhaps halfway through it and had just blown quite a goodish smoke ring when clumping footsteps made themselves heard, and Stilton loomed up on the skyline. I reached a hand into my pocket and got a firm grip on the old equalizer. Chapter 17 I don't know if you've ever seen a tiger of the jungle drawing a deep breath, preparatory to doing a swan dive and landing with both feet on the backbone of one of the minor fauna. Probably not, nor, as a matter of fact, have I. But I should imagine that a T of the J at such a moment would look, allowing, of course, for the fact that it would not have a pink face and a head like a pumpkin, exactly as G. Darcy Cheesewright looked as his eyes rested on the Worcester frame. For perhaps a couple of ticks he stood there, inflating and deflating his chest. Then he said, as I had rather supposed he would, Ho! His signature tune, as you might say. My nonchalance continued undiminished. It would have been idle to pretend that the blister's attitude was not menacing. It was about as menacing as it could jolly well stick. But with my hand on my cosh, I faced him without a tremor. Like Caesar's wife, I was ready for anything. I gave him a careless nod. Ah, Stilton, I said. How's tricks? The question appeared to set the seal on his hotted upness. He gnashed a tooth or two. I'll show you how tricks are. I've been looking for you all day. You wish to see me about something? I wish to pull your head off at its roots and make you swallow it. I nodded again, carelessly as before. Ah, yes, you rather hinted at some such desire last night, didn't you? It all comes back to me. Well, I'm sorry, Stilton, but I'm afraid it's off. I've made other plans. Percy Gorringe will no doubt have told you that I ran to London this morning, and I went to get this, I said, and produced the man of Slender Physique's best friend, and gave it an exaggerated waggle. There's one drawback to not wearing a moustache, and that is, if you don't have one, you've got nothing to twirl when baffled. All you can do is stand with your lower jaw drooping like a tired lily, looking a priceless ass. And that is what Stilton was doing now. His whole demeanour was that of an Assyrian, who, having come down like a wolf on the fold, finds in residence not lambs but wildcats, than which, of course, nothing makes an Assyrian feel sillier. Amazingly effective little contrivance, these, I proceeded, rubbing it in. You read about them a good deal in mystery thrillers. Cautious, they're called. They're blackjack, I believe, is the American term. He breathed stentoriously, his eyes bulged. I suppose he had never come up against anything like this before. One gets new experiences. You put that thing down. He said hoarsely. I propose to put it down, I replied, quick as a flash. I propose to put it down jolly dashed hard the moment you make a move. Though I am the merest novice in the use of a cosh, I don't see how I can help hitting a head the size of yours somewhere. And then, where will you be, cheese right? On the floor, dear old soul, that's where you'll be, with me carelessly dusting my hands and putting the instrument back in my pocket. One of these in his possession, the veriest weakling can lay out 
the toughest egg colder than a halibut on ice. To put it in a word, cheese right, I'm armed. And the setup as I see it is this. I take a comfortable stance with the weight balanced on both feet. You make a spring, and I cool as some cucumbers. It was a silly thing to say, that about making springs, because it put ideas into his head. He made one of the word cucumbers, with such abruptness that I was caught completely unaware. That's the trouble with beefy fellas like Stilton. They're so massive, you don't credit them with the ability to get off the mark like jackrabbits and fly through the air with the greatest of ease. Before I knew what had happened, the kosh was wrenched from my grasp and sailing across the hall to come the rest of the floor near Uncle Tom's safe. I stood there defenseless. Well, stood is putting it loosely. In crises like this, we Worcesters do not stand. It was soon made abundantly clear that Stilton was not the only one of our little circle who could get off marks like a jackrabbit. I doubt in the whole of Australia, where this species of animal abounds, you could have found a jackrabbit capable of the tithe of the swift smoothness with which I removed myself from the pulsating centre of things. To do a backward jump of some eleven feet and install myself behind the sofa was with me the work of an instant, and there for a while the matter rested, because every time he came charging round to my side, like a greyhound, I went whizzing around to his side, rendering his every effort null and void. Those great generals of whom I was speaking earlier go for this manoeuvre quite a bit. Strategic redeployment is the technical term. How long this round and round the mulberry bush sequence would have continued is not easy to say, but probably not any great length of time, for already my partner in the rhythmic doings was beginning to show signs of feeling the pace. Stilton, like so many of these beefy birds, is apt, when not in training for some aquatic contest, to yield to the lure of the flesh-pots. This takes its toll. By the end of the first dozen laps, while I remained as fresh as a daisy, prepared to fight it out on this line if it took all summer, he was puffing quite considerably, and his brow had become wet with honest sweat. But as so often happens on these occasions, the fixture was not played to the finish. Pausing for a moment before starting to lap 13, we were interrupted by the entry of Seppings and Dolly's butler, who came toddling in and looking rather official. I was glad to see him myself, for some sort of interruption was just what I had been hoping for. But this turning of the thing into a threesome plainly displeased Stilton, and I could understand why. The man's presence hampered him and prevented him from giving up his best. I've already explained that the cheese right code prohibits brawling if there are females around. The same rule holds good with members of the domestic staff, apparently. If butlers butt in while they are in the process of trying to ascertain the colour of some acquaintance's insides, the cheese rights cheese it. But mark you, they don't like cheesing it, and it is not to be wondered at that compelled by this major domo's presence to suspend hostilities, Stilton should have eyed him with ill-concealed animosity. His manner when he spoke was brusque. What do you want? The door, sir. Stilton's ill-concealed animosity became rather worse concealed. So packed indeed with deleterious animal magnetism was the glance he directed at Seppings that he felt that there was considerable danger of Aunt Dolly at any instance finding herself a butler short. What do you mean you want the door? Which door? What door? What on earth do you want a door for? I saw that it was almost impossible that he would ever get the thing straight in his mind without a word of explanation, so I supplied it. I always like, if I can, to do the square thing by one and all on these occasions. 
Scratch, Bertram, Worcester, I sometimes say, and you find a Boy Scout. The front door stilted old dance partner is what one presumes Pop Seppix has in mind. I would hazard the guess that the bell rang. Correct, Seppix? Yes, sir. He replied with quiet dignity. The front door bell rang, and in pursuance of my duties, I came to answer it. And his manner suggesting that that in his opinion would hold Stilton for a while, he carried on his plan. What all better happened, Stilton old scone, I said, clarifying the whole situation, is that some visitor waits without. I was right. Seppings flung wide the gates. There was a flash of blonde hair and a whiff of Chanel number no. five, and a girl came sailing in. A girl whom I was able to classify in a single glance as a Pipterino of the first water. Those who know Bertram Worcester best are aware that he is not a man who readily slops over when speaking of the opposite sex. He is cool and critical. He weighs his words. So when I describe this girl as a Pipterino, you will gather that she was something pretty special. She could have walked into any assembly of international beauty contestants and the committee of judges would have laid down the red carpet for her. One could imagine fashionable photographers fighting to the death for her custom. Like the heroine of the mystery of the pink crayfish, and indeed the heroines of all thrillers I have ever come across, she had hair the colour of ripe wheat and eyes of cornflower blue. Add a tip-tilted nose and a figure as full of curves as a scenic railway, and it will not strike you as strange that Stilton, sheathing the sword, should have stood gaping at her dumbly, his aspect that of a man who has been unexpectedly struck by a thunderbolt. Is Mrs. Travers around? Inquire this vision, addressing herself to Seppings. Will you tell her Miss Moorhead has arrived? I was astounded. For some reason, possibly because she had three names, the picture I had formed in my mind of Daphne Dolores Moorhead was that of an elderly female with a face like a horse and gold-rimmed pince-nez attached to a top button with a black string. Seeing her steadily, and seeing her whole, I found myself commending Aunt Dahlia's sagacity in inviting her to Brinkley Court, presumably to help promote the sale of the boudoir. A word from her advising its purchase would, I felt, go a long way with L.G. Trotter. He was doubtless a devoted and excellent husband, true as steel to the wife of his bee. But even devoted and excellent husbands are apt to react powerfully when girls of the D.D. Moorhead type start giving them the A treatment. Stilton was still goggling at her like a bulldog confronted with a pound of steak, and now her eyes of cornflower blue, becoming accustomed to the dim light of the hall, she took a deco at him and uttered an exclamation that seemed, oddly, considering what Stilton was like, one of pleasure. Mr. Cheesewright, she said. Well, fancy, I thought your face was familiar. She took another deco. You are Darcy Cheesewright, who used to row for Oxford. Stilton inclined the beam dumbly. He seemed incapable of speech. I thought so. Somebody pointed you out to me at the eight weeks ball one year, but I almost didn't recognize you. You had a mustache then. I'm so glad you don't any longer. You look so much handsomer without it. I do think mustaches are simply awful. I always say that a man who can lower himself to wearing a mustache might as well just grow a beard. I couldn't let that pass. There are mustaches and then there are mustaches, I said, twirling mine. Then, seeing that she was asking herself who this slim, distinguished young stranger might be, I tapped myself on the wishbone. 
Bertram Worcester, I said. I'm Mrs. Travers' nephew, she being my aunt. Should I lead you into her presence? She's probably counting the minutes. She pursed the lips dubiously, as if the program I had suggested deviated in many respects from the ideal. Yes, I suppose I ought to be going and saying hello, but what I would really like would be to explore the grounds. It's such a lovely place. Stilton, who was now a pretty vermilion, came partially out of the ether, uttering odd strangled noises like a man with no roof to his mouth, trying to recite Ganga Din. Finally, something coherent emerged. May I show you around? He said hoarsely. I would love it. Ho! Stilton said. He spoke quickly, as if feeling he had been remiss in not saying that earlier, and a moment later they were up and doing, and I, with something of the emotions of Daniel passing out of the stage door of the lion's den, went to my rooms. It was cool and restful there, and Dahlia is a woman who believes in doing her guests well in the matter of armchairs and chaise lounges, and the chaise lounge allotted to me yielded gratefully to the form. It was not long before a pleasant drowsiness stole over me. The weary eyelids closed and I slept. When I woke up half an hour later, my first act was to start with some violence. The brain cleared by slumber, I had remembered the kosh. I rose to my feet, appalled, and shot from the room. It was imperative that I should recover possession of that beneficent instrument with all possible speed. For though in our recent encounter I had outgeneraled Stilton in one round, Foiling him with my superior footwork and ring science, there was no knowing when he might be feeling ready for round two. A setback may discourage a cheese right for the moment, but does not dispose of him as a logical contender. The course you will recall had flashed through the air like a shooting star to wind up its trip somewhere near Uncle Tom's safe, and I proceeded to the spot on winged feet, and picture my concern on finding on my arrival that it wasn't there. The way things disappeared at Brinkley Court, ladders and coshes and what not, was enough to make a man throw his hands in the air and turn his face to the wall. At this moment I actually did turn my face to the wall, the one the safe was wedged into, and having done so gave another of those violent starts of mine. For what I saw was enough to make a fellow start with all the violence at his disposal. For two or three ticks I simply couldn't believe it. Bertram, I said to myself, the strain has been too much for you. You've gone cockeyed. But no, I blinked once or twice to clear the vision. And when I had finished blinking, there it was. Just as I had seen it the first time. The safe door was open. Chapter 18 It is in moments like this that you catch Bertram Wooster at his superb best. His ice-cold brain working like a machine. Many fellows, I mean to say, seeing that the safe door was open, would have wasted precious time standing there goggling at it, wondering why it was open, who had opened it, and why whoever had opened it hadn't shut it again. But not Bertram. Hand him something on a plate with watercress round it, and he does not loiter and linger. He acts. A quick dip inside and rapid rummaging, and I had the thing all sewed up. There were a half-dozen jewel cases stowed away on the shelves, and it took a minute or two to open them and examine the contents. But investigation revealed only one pearl necklace, so I was spared anything in the nature of a perplexing choice. Swiftly trouser-pocketing the bijouterie, I shot off to Aunt Dahlia's den like the jackrabbit I had so closely resembled at my recent conference with Stilton. She should, I thought, be there by now, and it was a source of considerable satisfaction to me to feel that I was about to bring the sunshine back into the life 
of the deserving old geezer. When last seen, she had so plainly been in need of a bit of sunshine. I found her in status quo as foreseen, smoking a gasper and spelling her way through her Agatha Christie. But I didn't bring the sunshine to her life because it was already there. I was amazed at the change in her demeanor since she had gone off droopingly to see if Uncle Tom had finished talking to Spode about old silver. Then, you'll recall, her air had been that of one caught in the machinery. Now she conveyed the impression of having found the bluebird. As she looked up on discovering me in her midst, her face was shining like the seat of a bus driver's trousers. And it wouldn't have surprised me much if she had started yodeling. Her whole aspect was that of an ant who on honeydew has fed and drunk the milk of paradise. And the thought crossed my mind that if she was feeling as yeasty as this before hearing the good news, she might quite easily, when I spilled the same, explode with a loud retort. I was not able, however, to reveal the chunk of secret history which I had up my sleeve, for, as so often happens when I'm closeted with this woman, she made it impossible for me to get a syllable in edgewise. Even as I crossed the threshold, words began to flutter from her like bats out of a barn. Bertie! She boomed. Just the boy I wanted to see. Bertie, my pet, I have fought the good fight. Do you remember the hymn about... See the troops of Midian prowl and prowl around. It goes on. Christian, up and smite them. And that is what I have done in no uncertain terms. Let me tell you what happened. It will make your eyes pop. I say, I said, but was able to get no further. She rolled over me like a steamroller. When we parted in the hall not long ago, you will remember, I was bewitched, bothered and bewildered because I couldn't get hold of Spode to put the bite on him about you lady sirs, and was going to the collection room on and off chance of there having been a lull. But when I arrived, I found Tom still gassing away, so I took a seat and sat there, hoping that Spode would eventually make a break for the open and give me a chance of having a word with him. But he continued to take it without a murmur, and Tom went on rambling. And then suddenly my bones were turned to water and the collection room swam before my eyes. Without any warning, Tom suddenly switched to the subject of the necklace. You might like to look at it now, he said. Certainly, said Spode. It's in the safe in the hall, said Tom. Let's go, said Spode. And off they went. She paused for breath, as even she has to do sometimes. I say, I said. The lungs refilled and she carried on again. I wouldn't have thought my limbs would have been able to support me to the door, much less down a long passage into the hall, but they did. I followed in the wake of the procession, giving at the knees, but somehow managing to navigate. What I thought I was doing, joining the party, I don't know, but I suppose I had some vague idea of being present when Tom got the bad news, and pleading brokenly for forgiveness. Anyway... I went. Tom opened the safe and I stood there as if I had been turned into a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife. I recall the incident to which she referred, it having happened to come up in the examination paper that time I won that prize for scripture knowledge at my private school. But it's probably new to you, so I'll give you a brief synopsis. For some reason which has escaped my memory, they told this Mrs. Lot while out walking one day, not to look around, or she'd be turned into a pillar of salt. So, of course, she immediately did look around, and by what I have always thought an odd coincidence, she was turned into a pillar of salt. 
It just goes to show you what? I mean to say, you never know where you are these days. Time marched on. Tom took out the jewel case and passed it over to Spode, who said, Ah, this is it, is it? Or some damn silly remark like that. And at that moment, with the hand of doom within a toucher of descending, Seppings appeared, probably sent by my guardian angel, and told Tom he was wanted on the phone. Eh, what, said Tom, his invariable practice, when told he is wanted on the phone, and legged it, followed by Seppings. Woof! She said, and paused for breath again. I say, I said. You can imagine how I felt. That stupendous bit of luck had changed the whole aspect of affairs. For hours I had been wondering how on earth I could get Spode alone, and now I had got him alone. You could bet I didn't waste a second. Just think, Lord Sidcup, I said winningly. I haven't had a moment yet to talk to you about all our mutual friends and those happy days at Totley Towers. How is dear Sir Watkin Bassett, I asked, still winningly. I fairly cooed to the man. I say, I said. She squashed me with an imperious gesture. Don't interrupt, curse you. I never saw such a chap for wanting to colour the conversation. Gabble, gabble, gabble. Listen, can't you, when I'm telling you the biggest story that has broken around these parts for years. Where was I? Oh, yes. How is dear Sir Watkin, I said. And he said, dear Sir Watkin was pretty ujab kump spiff. And dear Madeline, I said, and he said, dear Madeline was ticking over all right. And then I drew a deep breath and let him have it. And how is that lady's underclothing place of yours getting along, I said. Eulalie soars, isn't it called? Still coining money, I trust? And the next moment you could have knocked me down with a feather. For with a jolly laugh he replied, Eulalie soars, oh I haven't anything to do with that anymore. I sold out ages ago. It's a company now. And as I stood there gaping at him, my whole plan of campaign and ruins, he said, Well, I may as well have a look at that necklace. Mr. Travers says he's anxious to have my opinion of it. And he pressed his thumb to the catch, and the jewel case flew open, and I was just commending my soul to God and saying to myself that this was the end, when I stubbed my foot against something and looked down, and lying there on the floor, you'll scarcely believe this, was a kosh. She paused again, took on a cargo of breath quickly and resumed. Yes, sir, a kosh. You wouldn't know what a kosh is, of course, so I'll explain. It's a small rubber instrument. Much used by the criminal classes for sucking their friends and relations. They wait till their mother-in-law's back is turned and then let her have it. It's all the rage in underworld circles. And there it was, as I say, lying at my feet. I say, I said. I got the imperious gesture between the eyes once more. Well, for a moment it rang no bell. I picked it up automatically. The good housewife who doesn't like to see things lying on floors. But it held no message for me. It simply didn't occur to me that my guardian angel had been directing my footsteps and was showing me the way out of my troubles and perplexities. And then suddenly, in a blinding flash, I got it. I realized what that good old guardian angel was driving at. He had at last succeeded in penetrating the bone, getting it into my fat head. There was Spode with his back turned, starting to take out the necklace. I gasped gurglingly. You didn't cosh him? Certainly I coshed him. 
What would you have had me do? What would Napoleon have done? I took a nice easy half swing and let it go with lots of follow through. He fell to the earth he knew not where. I can readily believe it. Just so had Constable Dobbs fallen at Deverell Hall. He's in bed now, convinced that he had a touch of vertigo and hit his head on the floor. Don't worry about Spode, a good night's rest and a bland diet, and he'll be right as rain tomorrow. And I've got the necklace. I've got the necklace. I've got the Bali necklace, and I feel as if I could pick up a couple of tigers and knock their heads together. I gaped at her. The bean was swimming. Through the mist that had risen before my eyes, she appeared to be swaying like an ant caught in a high wind. You say you've got the necklace? I quivered. I certainly have. Then what? I said, in about as hollow a voice as ever proceeded from human lips, is this one that I've got? And I produced my exhibit. For quite a while it was plain that she had failed to follow the story sequence. She looked at the necklace, then at me, then at the necklace again. It was not until I had fully explained that she got the strength of it. Of course, yes. She said, her brow clearing. I see it all now. What with the yelling for Tom and telling him Spode had had some sort of seizure and listening to him saying, Oh my God, now we'll have to put the frightful fellow up for the night and trying to comfort him and helping Seppings tote the remains to bed and all that. I forgot to suggest shutting the safe door. And Tom, of course, never thought of it. He was much too busy tearing his hair and saying that this was certainly the last time he would invite a club acquaintance to his house. It being notorious that the first thing club acquaintances do on finding themselves in somebody's home is to have fits and take advantage of them to stay dug into the woodwork for weeks. And then you came along. And rummaged in the safe and found a pearl necklace and naturally thought it was yours. And swiped it. Very decent of you, Bertie, dear. And I appreciate the kind thought. If you had been here this morning... I would have told you that Tom insisted on putting everyone's valuables in the safe. But you had dashed up to London. What took you there, by the way? I went to get the Kosh, formerly the property of Aunt Agatha's son, Thomas. I've been having little trouble of late with menaces. She gazed at me with worshipping eyes, deeply moved. Was it you, my heart of gold? She said brokenly. Who provided that Kosh? I had been putting it down as straight guardian angel stuff. Oh, Bertie, if ever I called you a brainless poop who ought to be given a scholarship at some good lunatic asylum, I take back the words. I thanked her briefly. What happens now? I give three rousing cheers and start strewing roses from my hat. I frowned with a touch of impatience. I'm not talking about you, my dear old ancestor, but about your nephew Bertram. The latter being waist high in the obligatory and liable at any moment to sink without a trace. Here I am in possession of somebody's pearl necklace. Ma Trotters, I recognize it now. She wears it in the evenings. Right, so far so good. The choker belongs, we find, to Mrs. Trotter. That point established, what do I do for the best? You put it back. In the safe? That's it, you put it back in the safe. It struck me as a most admirable idea, and I wondered why I hadn't thought of it myself. You've hit it, I've said. Yes, I'll put it back in the safe. I'd run along now if I were you. No time like the present. I will. Oh, by the way, Daphne Dolores Moorhead has arrived. She's out on the grounds with Stilton. What did you think of her? 
A sight for sore eyes, if I may use the expression. I had no idea they were making female novelists like that these days. I would have gone on to amplify the favourable impression the young visitor's outer crust had made on me, but at that moment Mrs. Trotter loomed up in the doorway. She looked at me as if feeling that I was on the whole pretty superfluous. Oh, good evening, Mr. Worcester. She said in a distant sort of way. I was hoping to find you alone, Mrs. Travers. She added, with the easy tact which had made her the toast of Liverpool. I'm just off, I assured her. Nice evening. Yes, very nice. Toodaloo, I said, and set a course with a hall, feeling pretty bobbish for at least a portion of my troubles would soon be over, if, of course, the safe was still open. It was, and I had reached it, and was on the point of whipping out the jewel case and depositing it when a voice spoke behind me. Turning like a startled fawn, I perceived L.G. Trotter. Since my arrival at Brinkley Court, I had not fraternized to any great extent with this weasel-faced old buster. He gave me the impression, as he had done at that dinner of mine, of not being too frightfully keen on the society of his juniors. I was surprised that he should be wanting to chat with me now, and wished that he could have selected some more suitable moment. With that necklace on my person, solitude was what I desired. Hey, he said. Where's your aunt? She's in a room, I replied, talking to Mrs. Trotter. When you see her, tell her I've gone to bed. That surprised me. To bed? Surely the night is yet young. I've got one of my dyspeptic attacks. You haven't a digestive pill on you. I'm sorry, I came out without any. Hell. He said, rubbing the abdomen. I'm in agony. I feel as if I'd swallowed a couple of wildcats. Hello. He proceeded changing the subject. What's that safe door doing open? I threw out the suggestion that somebody must have opened it, and he nodded as a thinking will of the theory. Damn careless, he said. That's the way things get stolen. And before my bulging eyes, he stepped across and gave the door a shove. It closed with a clang. Oof, he said, massaging the abdomen once more, and with a curt good night, passed up the stairs, leaving me frozen to the spot. Lot's wife couldn't have been stiffer. Any chance I had of putting things back in the safe had gone with the wind.